and welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the show that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries. I'm your host, Hannah Chapman. And I'm your host, Lauren Burke. And this week is the finale of our literary tourism season. We are looking back at trips past and giving you a glimpse into road trips of the future with audio Mm. from a very special Mary Wollstonecraft walking tour and an introduction to a brand new to Bonnets author and literary destination. So first things first, last November, Lauren joined me in the UK and we traveled to Yorkshire and the Lake District and finally London and on a very cold, gray, drizzly, windy morning, we met with Roberta Wedge of the Mary Wollstonecraft Society, who you might remember from our Mary Wollstonecraft, believe it or not, episode right from season three episode eight and we met her outside saint pancras old church and we learned a little more about the church and the neighborhood and some of its famous residents right can you tell us just for the audio quickly just where we are and what the significance is of this building okay we are standing in old saint pancras church not to be confused with the new saint pancras church which is 200 years old very new. (laughs) This old one is very old, goes back to the Norman Conquest at least, possibly much older. Um, And it was in this church that Mary Wollstonecraft was married, and it was in this churchyard that she was buried six months later, ten days after the birth of the little girl who grew up to write Frankenstein. So this church is one that that Mary Wollstonecraft knew well for the past the last couple of years of her life when she was living in Somerstown, the, the area around here. Um, and the church itself was in farmers' fields for centuries. Very evocative. We had this wonderful celebration here six months ago and all these dry academics who spend their life in windowless meeting rooms and lecture halls said how surprisingly touching it was to be in a building that she had known and how atmospheric it was to be in a place whose spirit had touched her um, and I was very pleased to facilitate that yeah shall we go and see the churchyard yes please yeah. Yeah. so this is the curtilage of the church itself very limited outdoor space that actually belongs to the church mm-hmm. everything here used to be the churchyard and in fact it went way beyond there about two or three times as big as what you can see here Uh, but it is now Camden Council public park essentially a dog walking park a office eat your sandwiches lunchtime park Mm -hmm. Um, but it's still got that kind of connection to the church because as you can see there are graves around here so you know walk your dog and eat your sandwiches in the middle of you know the Kensian graves that's what Dickens wanted. Well, okay, so let, let's take the Dickens angle. Um, grave robbing. Yeah. Used to be known as fishing. Oh. oh. Fishing. Uh, fishing for the dead bodies to sell back to the medical schools for, um, so that the students could uh, dissect them. Yeah. Um, and also, if they've got any gold teeth that they need to be relieved of, then that's an additional bonus for the fishers. Um, Many, many graveyards were um, subject to fishing. 
But this one in particular was name-checked by Dickens in A Tale of Two Cities. Right, okay. Um, and I love the fact that it was the Tale of Two Cities, London and Paris, because that noise is the trains going to Paris and the Eurostar <laughs> from St Pancras Station. Uh, that's not literally the Eurostar, it doesn't squeak so much, but the next train in will be the Eurostar. Um, and it's the building of that train line in the 1850s that cut the um, churchyard, that reduced the space of the churchyard. So. This church had been in the middle of a field and for hundreds of years, and then when London began to grow significantly in Mary Wollstonecraft's time, and then beyond it, all of the churchyards of London just filled up with, with so many bodies you couldn't bury them anymore. It was disgusting. It was seeping into the water. People were getting ill, you know. So the church commissioners put a stop to it and said, you can't bury any more people in, in these churchyards. Um, and they, they created ones further out in, in outer London. And then they had to um, respectfully do something with, with the bodies because of the railway coming through. Yeah. And in other churchyards, they could kind of seal them up more or less and just say no, no in, no out. Mm -hmm. But because they needed to clear the bodies from where the railway line was going to be built, they had to do it super respectfully because of the previous generation's fishing. Mm -hmm. So any hint of digging up the dead would be really bad publicity. Yeah unless they did it um, with, with utmost attention to detail. So the firm of civil engineers who were brought in to do that sort of thing, it devolved down on the youngest person in, in the office who couldn't get out of you know, the Doing least yeah, yeah. favorite job, <laughs> spend the next couple of years supervising the digging up of the dead and the, the respectful reinterring of their bones. And the youngest person in the office who couldn't escape that was Thomas Hardy who spent his evenings writing poetry mm -hmm. and after a couple of years of digging up the dead said I think I will ditch this civil engineering lark and go in for a life of literature <laughs> and that's what he did and then the two odd buildings there the one the little Victorian Gothic cottage red brick cottage and then immediately behind it the mid 20th century building are both St. Patrick's coroner's court so a lot of the murders in central London get investigated it. Oh really? Oh. oh, do you want to have like a lat Lauren? Maybe like peek through the window or <laughs> still investigating see a body? Yeah. That it's not just murders, it's any unexplained death has to go through the coroner's court. That and that's it. Great. And we know those are all murders. There's only one grave uh, or tomb I should say that is fenced off and that's the one ahead of us. Does the shape of the tomb evoke anything for you. It is quite a distinctive shape. It's got a little dome situation. Mm -hmm. Little acorn on top. Is it... No, I'm not going to say what I think it is. What do you think it is, Lauren? I'm not sure, but I'm wondering if like the dome shape is referencing a building of some significance. Almost the other way around. Okay. The is it St. Paul's grave? Stupid. Was that stupid? Okay, I don't know who's saying. Uh, I guess he's really old from somewhere else. I don't know. I don't know. I guess I was totally wrong. <laughs> uh, the supposition is that that shape is is more or less an original creation to have a dome which is then cut into a square. Mm -hmm. And the way that that is lifted on four pillars 
to make a uh, double cube with then the dome on top of it. It has been said that that's a model for the red telephone boxes. No! Okay. Oh! It does look like a telephone box. Alexander Bell. Wrong. He's American, right? <laughs> so the architect who came up with that shape, it is his family tomb. He designed uh, that tomb for himself and his family. And uh, Sir John Soane designed the Bank of England and many significant buildings of Palladian London. And his house, if you have not visited it, I highly recommend it, mm -hmm. just off um, Lincoln's Inn Fields, Gray's Inn Fields. Um, just off Kingsway, in, at the heart of legal London. It's a free visit to his house, uh, although no bags, no big bags or okay. medium-sized bags yeah. or small bags even. Let's <laughs> leave them all behind. Um, but it's a treasure trove inside his, his house. It's interesting because it's like, I mean it does, it looks like a TARDIS, now I see it. <laughs> yeah, no I was waiting for that. Have you got any idea yet where Wollstonecraft's grave is? Okay, let's see here. Oh, wow. There's a ton of them here, actually. One of those little square ones, is it? I feel like it would be bigger. Is it not bigger? You each get three. Okay. Okay. Is it what? Is it over there? You want me to play hot, warm, cold? Yeah. That's different. The like vase situation? It's not the one of the vase. Wrong. Okay. Is that little flat topped one? There's three just there, it's the middle one. You're correct. Yeah. Really? What drew you to that? I saw the postcard in good. the church. Oh, yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, good. Duh. And I'm also, sorry. I've led you to this spot <laughs> yeah. and I'm kind of looking at it, but yeah. Okay, so let's go and check out Mary. Yes. Um, the, there are a couple of other ways you can tell. One, you will notice the great patch of mud. There are pilgrims who come every day. Okay. She is visited. Yeah, it's quite like a, it's flat. There's like no grass. Yeah. Some leaves, even the leaves are just trodden. Exactly. Into yeah. the mud. Yeah. yeah. At certain lights, you know, sunset, whatever, you get a wonderful clear view of the lettering. Yeah. And sometimes less so. So this is this is the Mary Wollstonecraft side, if you can't see it in this dim light. Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin, author of A Vindication of the Rights of Woman, born 27th of April 1759, died 10th of September 1797. Godwin knew what she would be remembered for. When he wrote those memoirs, he said he entitled them Memoirs of the Author of A Vindication of the Rights of Woman. Yeah. He figured it out. He knew that within weeks of her death. So here she is, or here she was. Now this is a good pub quiz question. Oh, good. Where is Mary Wollstonecraft buried? And you have to get people to enunciate the verb tense because she was buried at St. Pancras Churchyard, but she is buried in Bournemouth. Why Bournemouth? Ah, good question. She was dug up and moved, yeah. not to do with the railway cutting, but at a separate occasion by her only surviving grandchild. They had one child together, Mary who grew up 
to elope with the poet Shelley. Um, and Mary Shelley had several children and they all died by virtue of leading a peripatetic poetic life, with the exception of one, Percy, named after his father. And his mother, when widowed, devoted the rest of her life to her son mm. and hoped that he would take on the artistic poetic soul of his father which he definitely did not he was a hunting shooting and fishing squire but they still got on very well and when he married a good county girl they still got on very well which it so could have gone the other way yeah but it it was good that the three of them got along very well they never had children um but Mary Shelley was in poor health by her mid-40s and was clearly on her way out and she expressed a wish to be buried alongside her parents and when her surviving child and daughter-in-law had to confront the reality of this where are they going to bury dear mama they thought well this whole area of St Pancras had fallen into Dickensian slums by the mid 19th century they were aristocrats yeah. um, living in near Bournemouth and they did not want to be reattached to a very uh, insalubrious part of the capital. Yeah. So they said, how can we honor dear Mama's dying wish and yet not uh, have to come up to bury her in horrible old St. Pancras? I know, we will dig up dear Grandmama and dear Grandpapa and transport them to the healthy seaside air of Bournemouth Church of England uh, churchyard. So that's what they did. They buried them all there, and there's a fancy Shelley family tomb, which famously includes the heart of the poet, which was rescued from the uh, the um, conflagration on the beach when they burned the body after the drowning. Um, Mary Shelley rescued his heart and brought it back to England in the casket, and that went into the family tomb uh, at Bournemouth. But Mary Wollstonecraft never went to Bournemouth in her life. Okay. Just the body. Just the body. Just hanging out down there. So that's two sides of the grave. Notice how square and rational and unornamented it is, as suits, you know, very rational people. Now we come to the third side, and here we have Mary Jane Cremont, Mary Jane Godwin. she comes down to us in history as the wicked stepmother, mm-hmm. but her own story has not been told. Mm-hmm. And she was a very ingenious woman. She did her very best for her children. She and Godwin both brought two children into their marriage, and they then had one together. Five children in the household. Not one of those siblings had the same two parents. And we think blended families are a new thing. They're yeah. not. They're yeah. not. Uh, the fatherhood of her two children was a bit of a mystery, a mystery which was cleared up a few years ago by a retired physiotherapist in Australia, oh, really? who was doing a bit of family history research herself and came up with some unexpected findings in the uh, letters from the archives of, I believe it was Somerset, from some lawyers that had gone out of business a long, long time ago. And she followed the trail through, and she discovered uh, who had fathered Mary Jane's children. Oh. Um, county squires who refused to pay up and so on. Hence the lawyer's letters. Yeah. So she set her cap, as the expression had it, at the great philosopher. 
and decided to marry him and he was left with these two little children. I mean, a wet nurse can take care of the, the infant Mary, but he needed a mother for the children. He was a bachelor of temperament. But um, reader, she married him and kept the family together. Yeah. Um, she was a writer in her, in her own right and a publisher. They set up a publishing house, the juvenile reader, and a bookshop uh, lived above the shop. And all of Godwin's friends thought, what is he doing marrying this woman? You know, she's no patch on, on Mary Wollstonecraft. But she kept the family together. And Godwin just sort of went around saying, I am a genius, you are rich, give me money. And you can't raise kids on that. Yeah. So there you go, so that's three of them. And then the fourth side is white. So had Godwin married again, presumably his third wife could have gone there. <laughs> oh, that's good. Godwin and all his Keep wives. A Keep a spare size. Keep a spare size. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just in case. Well, because then you can pay for a fancier one, knowing that you're going to reuse it a couple of times. Mm -hmm. so. That's pretty much it. Yeah. Anyway, so Shirley comes along and, and woos uh, young Mary, and uh, they famously plighted their troth at the graveside. Yeah, I wondered if that was just a really, you know, one of those Mary Shelley rumors, you know, because she's such a myth, but did it happen? I wasn't there myself. Sure. <laughs> this is where it would have happened had it happened. Thank you so, so much, Roberta, for helping us reimagine London as Wollstonecraft might have known it. It was a really grotty day, as you mm -hmm. can tell from the audio, and we really appreciate you taking the time to show us London as she might have known it. I especially loved hearing about the conference in the church and how the atmosphere impacted the attendees. Mm -hmm. I thought that was really special. I wish I'd That's been really there. Cool. I think if you're ever in London, you've got to go and visit, buy the postcard, it's a great postcard, look at the Thomas Hardy tree, because that's like something out of Sleepy Hollow, mm -hmm. and you might bump into someone leaving a little offering on Mary Wollstonecraft's grave. I also really loved that the conference was in the church, and I know that attending a more sort of like location-oriented conference is something that we're both really, really keen yeah. to do, um, and actually... That really leads us nicely into our road trip plans for the future and the newest inductee into the Bonnets Hall of Fame, which is uh, Willa Cather. Now, I have to admit that Cather was someone who was not even remotely on my radar um, until we started the show. In fact, I think it was actually seeing her literary home on social media that introduced me to her work as well as a few bonnet people, I will say. I have been stopped at like Jasna events and stuff and people going, hey, are you gonna do Willa Cather? And I'm like, oh, who is that? <laughs> um, but what about you? Have you have you ever heard of Cather? No, like I haven't heard a sausage. Not a whisper, not a rumbling. Mm. I, is that gonna be the same for British people? <laughs> like non-Americans? I, I, possibly. I was really surprised too because like, Cather is a Midwest author. Mm -hmm. But yeah, not not a sausage. I'm going to start saying that. Yeah, that's good. Not a sausage. Is that a real thing or is that a Hannah thing? I think it's a real... This might be that whole feet under the rug situation. Mm. Is that the correct feet under the table? Feet under the table. 
I think not not a sausage is a common it's a common thing I say it a lot I believe okay. other people <laughs> have said it so it's interesting that we're discussing Willa Cather right after covering Ellen Montgomery earlier this season because there are some interesting similarities between the two so Willa was born just a year before Montgomery in 1873 She is also often described as a regionalist writer because many of her works are about the American frontier and the plains, and her writing is steeped in that landscape and history. And like Montgomery, she has not just a single literary home, but an entire town in Red Cloud, Nebraska. In fact... The Willa Cather Center is the largest collection of nationally designated historic sites dedicated to an American author in the States, which is crazy. Yeah. And for me, I think that's like a huge draw for wanting to know more about Cather and to like visit the center. So I obviously take having Jane Austen's bath on my doorstep absolutely for granted Mm -hmm. and castles. I don't know the things. Yeah. You Anglophiles, like... Love a castle. Very used to them. Mm -hmm. Um, But what I'm not used to is this totally new landscape or, like, portion of history that I've only ever seen in films and books. Right. Because we consume a lot of American media. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I am desperate to go and see... Would you call that, like, a small town? Yeah, it's basically. Is it, it in the like, Midwest? It looks like a film set, actually. Yeah, which is small crazy. town Midwest historic. It's a real atmosphere. I don't think I've ever seen a plane. Yeah, I've seen them oh. all, but have I seen a plane? No. Mm. So yeah, no. so I'm desperate to go so I can be whatever the uh, American version of an Anglophile is. Yeah, we're still working that out, and I want to be in a costume at least once. <laughs> <laughs> just, I'm just gonna like speak it so that it happens happens i'm putting it into the universe i think it can be arranged i think that's i think it can easily be arranged so there are a few other similarities between montgomery and cather so they both attended university they both went on to become journalists in 1896 cather moved to pittsburgh to write for home monthly and a year later she was working as the telegraph editor and drama critic for the Pittsburgh Leader, and in 1906, she moved to New York to work as an editor for McClure's... McClure's? McClure's, yeah, you can say Or like Troy McClure from The Simpsons. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Just like that. Troy Mm -hmm. McClure's magazine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, So before she'd ever written a novel, she had this really substantial career as a journalist, and that gives me Susan Farb vibes massively, and Ellen Montgomery vibes mm-hmm. um i just yeah these lady journalists that keep sneaking onto the show fascinating and also i just think again it helps kind of dispel the accidental authoress myth yes absolutely. because it's someone who has had a career and like we both work and have worked in publishing and again it's it's like that thing right i don't know it's kind of nice these profi- <laughs> professional gals going on to write books so uh, her first book, Alexander's Bridge, wasn't published until she was 40 and it did okay, but it was her next three books that really made a name for her. So Oh Pioneers, The Song of the Lark and My Antonia were critical and commercial ex- successes 
and they're considered her prairie trilogy. So again, I'm in. Prairie. You love the prairie. I just, we don't have those. Yeah. <laughs> I've never seen one. They're all, they're all set in Nebraska, so I'm going to read them all before we do this visit. Mm-hmm. Sinclair Lewis, who is an American writer, he and yeah. he has a house in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sinclair Lewis said that Cather made the outside world know Nebraska as no one else has done. Now, Hannah and I have placed a trip to Nebraska on our literary bucket list. Sadly, our plans are on hold at the moment, but we have done a little preliminary planning, which included a chat with the executive director of the Willa Cather Center, Ashley Olson. Good, good. It's always exciting when we have the opportunity to introduce Cather to a group who hasn't yet discovered her as a writer. So this will be fun. Uh, she yeah. was born in Virginia in 1873, and she was nine years old when her family moved to Webster County, Nebraska, where her father farmed and raised livestock for a time before moving his family into nearby Red Cloud and opening a farm loan and insurance business. So Cather spent her adolescent years in Red Cloud And it was a time that the community was really growing and booming and changing and people from all across the the globe, immigrants from many different nations were coming to Webster County. And so it was just this really evocative time. And she did a great job of absorbing some of those early memories and absorbing those early experiences and recalling those memories later on when she became a writer. Uh, But she graduated from the local high school in 1890 and went on to college at the University of Nebraska, where she also spent some time writing theater criticism for the Nebraska State Journal. After graduation, she spent a decade in Pittsburgh editing the Home Monthly magazine and then working at the Pittsburgh Daily Leader and spent uh, a while uh, teaching high school as well. Before committing herself full-time to her writing career, she was the managing editor of McClure's Magazine in New York, where she lived for uh, about 40 years, actually, after leaving Pittsburgh. Uh, So all told, she produced 12 novels, plus several collections of fiction, a book of poetry, and several nonfiction books. In terms of honors and achievements. She was awarded a Pulitzer Prize in 1923 for a novel called One of Ours, which tells the story of a character named Claude Wheeler, who Cather modeled after her cousin, G.P. Cather, who died in the U.S. troops' first major offensive engagement at Cantini, France in World War I. So it's an interesting read. Uh, She also received a William Dean Howells Medal for Death Comes for the Archbishop a gold medal from the National Institute of Arts and Letters, and a pre-femina for her depiction of French culture in her novel Shadows on the Rock. She's had quite the career. I, It's kind of shocking that, um, I mean, I've talked about on this show before that I feel like my education as far as female authors was really lacking, which is one of the reasons why we started this show. Um, and I'm like really surprised, like having gone to school, especially in the Midwest, like have not like never covering her on like my high school curriculum, you know? 
Yeah, well, we hear that from people from time to time. And of course, it's discouraging in some ways, but it also mm-hmm. feels like a really incredible opportunity to continue right. to to introduce her work to new audiences. And interestingly enough, uh, Cather herself, when there were opportunities to have her work included in, in textbooks and things of that nature, she was uh, kind of opposed to it. She didn't want her work forced down uh, the throats of children. She really wanted people to discover her on their own. And mm-hmm. so it's interesting now that the work that we do, of course, hinges so much upon introducing young people and and students to Cather's work. I think ultimately she'd be happy with that, but she didn't want it to be a requirement, I don't think. She, she anticipated people might hate it. She wanted them to cultivate their appreciation on their own. Is there um, a particular book or short story that is like your personal favorite? I get asked that a lot and it's so hard to pick a favorite. Mm-hmm. It really is. We've always tried to curb the perception that Cather was solely a regional writer. So in that vein, mm-hmm. I feel like I should say that Death Comes for the Archbish- Archbishop is a novel I really enjoyed. I appreciate that though it's fiction, it's rooted in history, chronicling the efforts of a Catholic bishop and a priest to establish a diocese in New Mexico territory. Uh, the first time I read the novel, I, I think I read it in a couple days, I really couldn't put it down. It was just really exciting. The storyline kept you engaged throughout the book. So I really appreciated that. And then returning to the Midwest, My Antonia was my first introduction to Cather as a high school student. And it's a book I, to this day, revisit every couple of years. I really admire the strength of the character Antonia and her perseverance. Uh, Her character was actually modeled after a friend of Cather's whose real life closely mirrors that of Antonia's. I've seen the book uh, critiqued at times for its lack of realism, but I think I think Cather strikes a good balance in portraying some of the difficult conditions experienced by early settlers and alongside some of the more lighthearted activities and social events that took place at the time. I suppose there's a fair amount of romanticism in the book. Cather was clearly drawing from her early Nebraska memories and was probably experiencing a fair amount of nostalgia at the time she wrote the text, but the book isn't all sunshine and roses. She weaves in events like suicide and adultery and murder that are pretty raw and relevant topics yet today. Um, Now, do you have any favorite sort of anecdotes or stories about Willa that kind of resonate with you or that you think about often in your work? Well, one of the stories that has always stuck with me from the first time I visited Cather's childhood home was a story about Sandy Point. Uh, After Cather became famous, she liked to tell people about a make-believe town Mm -hmm. that she and her, she and the neighbor children, the miners had created. And the town was called Sandy Point. It was made of packing crates and they gave the town the name Sandy Point after the sand that Cather's father had hauled in to help them create the street. But Cather was elected mayor of Sandy Point. It was really (laughs) a lovely postcard in our collection uh, that Cather sent from Venice, lovingly recalling, I think she calls it Sandy Point in its best days. And she references Sandy Point in her letters to her brother Roscoe, 
I've just always thought it was amusing to think of a young Cather creating and running her own little community. It's touching that those childhood memories stayed with her throughout her life and seem to always be so lovingly recalled in her later years. That's really cute. Did she, um, do you know, write any juvenilia? No. Oh, interesting. Because I'm like, oh, I feel like Sandy Point would be like a great juvenilia piece as well. So we do a lot of work with literary homes here. And um, I find that like the Willa Cather Foundation really stands out because, you know, usually we're just dealing with one house or one site that we're fighting to preserve. But it's like a whole town with you guys. Well, it's a pre- I, I like to think it's a pretty special place. I'm a little biased, mm-hmm. of course, and not all of that. Sure. But it's a community in rural Nebraska with about a thousand residents. So it's very small and very rural. And what makes Red Cloud so special is that we are home to the largest collection of nationally designated historic sites dedicated to an American author. Mm-hmm. So we have a large number of properties, including Willa Cather's childhood home, which is a national historic landmark that we preserve and provide tours of year round. Uh, and those properties, um, in addition to the historic homes, Cather's childhood home, the Pavelka farmstead, which is a setting in my Antonia, uh, the Farmers and Merchants Bank, which gets a mention in Cather's novel, A Lost Lady. We have a train depot, uh, the Minor House, which is also a setting in my Antonia and two uh, historic churches. But in addition to all of that, because that's not enough, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. we have the Red Cloud Opera House, which was restored in 2003 and is a performing arts center and art gallery again. And uh, the National Willa Cather Center, uh, where our museum and archive is housed, as well as a 600-acre native prairie south of Red Cloud. My gosh. This is wild. And then, so if I were to come visit, could you, do you do tours of each site or um, do you kind of limit it to the house only? We offer tours of, of a little bit of variety. So depending on how much time a guest has to spend with us, they can tour one property, which is typically the place people like to go is her childhood home, of course. And then we have a three building tour as well as a seven building tour. So if you wanna see it all, you take the seven building tour. And of course, if you come at a time where we're staging an event at the Opera House, you'll get in on some of those activities and the Cather Prairie's a lovely place to have uh, a self-guided experience. There are walking trails and some interpretive signage there. If the weather cooperates, it's a lovely place to to picnic and to watch Mm -hmm. the sunset. It's just, it's beautiful to see the horizon line from the prairie. Uh, When you're there, you can see so much of the community in the county. It's really remarkable how far you can look out and, and really see the countryside. And we are back. Now, there is an annual Willa Cather conference held in Red Cloud um, every June, and I am hoping, fingers crossed, we are able to go next June. That's the goal. Take me to Nebraska, Lauren. Okay. No one has ever (laughs) said that to me before. (laughs) 
I'll say it again. <laughs> but sure. Yeah, I'm down. We're, we're going. Okay. So um, I know that some of our listeners, I think especially those overseas, are going to be new to Cather. So um, I'm going to recommend a few things uh, to get you guys started. Um and then hopefully next year, you know, we'll dive in a little deeper. It's nice of you to frame these recommendations as if it's like for the listener's benefit and not like, Hannah, you have to go <laughs> and educate yourself on this Anna, person you should... you've never heard of. <laughs> I'll, I'll do this homework. It looks good. You should. It's good homework. Okay. So the first up, there is this great 30 minute documentary on Willa Cather's letters. Ooh. You love a letter. I you love, love letters. Letter. Yeah. It's on YouTube. Um, it's called Yours, Willa Cather. Great name. Good name. 30 minutes. Should be longer. Can I tell you? I think I thought... Don't know. I, Snappy. Keep it like... Yeah, that's good. I was into it. I enjoyed it. Um, so Cather was very private and demanded that all of her letters be burned upon her death. Just like so familiar. <laughs> yeah. Um, she even asked her friends to do... The same. So anything that involved her, burn it. Um, but they weren't all destroyed. In fact, a lot were not destroyed. <laughs> I have to say, they have a ton in those archives at the oh Willa Cather gosh. Center. Um, and What Remains was all published. And this doc talks about uh, what was in those letters. So the letters I'm particularly interested in are those between Cather and fellow American author Sarah Orne Jewett, who also has a lit home that I want us to visit. Uh, Jewett served as a literary mentor to Cather. And um, I'm also interested in reading the correspondence between Cather and Dorothy Canfield Fisher, another author with whom uh, Cather was friendly. They had a falling out because Cather used a mutual friend of theirs as inspiration for a story called The Profile. So that sounds like some good some good episode content right there you, that's a movie let's write that movie go on <laughs> yeah because if we say it yeah. no one else can say it so that's why i always say it on the show because mm. i'm like we should make it we're, none of we're gonna write that movie we're gonna does anyone want to finance that movie hit us yeah. up um number two there is a really interesting essay on lit hub called the american archetype of rural queerness rural the hardest word ever. It's rural queerness redefined. Redefined. A <laughs> lot of words in that title. Um, it's by Z Francis. It's actually really great. Um, I, this was kind of like my introduction to Cather, and I'm, I'm glad it was. So I would love some someone from the Willa Cather uh, Society to weigh in here. I know we have a few people in our Facebook group, um, but there seem to be some debates within the Cather community regarding her sexuality. While Cather never defined herself as a lesbian, um, she did have relationships with women. And in fact, she lived with Edith Lewis, um, who was an editor, for 39 years, and they are buried together. So seems pretty, pretty strong to me. And also the idea that like, the context of the time someone was living, like, could she come out as a lesbian? Like... Was right. it safe to do so? What was the response going to be? The situation, like just someone labeling themselves that way doesn't mean, you know, and I think some right. of that, that often is something that we come across in our research where 
you will see something about someone and it's like, well, this was never like explicitly stated. And it's like, it doesn't Mm -hmm. have to be. Yeah. So. Yeah. 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 And finally, if you are looking for a biography on Cather, then I suggest Willa Cather, Double Lives by Hermione Lee. Um, Hannah, do you want to go ahead and read this review? Hermione Lee's provocative and influential biography provides a sensitive reappraisal of a marvellous and often underrated writer. The Willa Cather she reveals here was a Nebraskan who spent much of her life in self-imposed exile from the prairies she celebrated in O Pioneers and My Antonia, a woman whose life was riddled with the tension between masculine and feminine, and a writer whose naturalness of style disguised exquisite artistry. By exposing the contradictions that lie at the heart of much of Cather's life and work, Lee locates new layers of meaning and places her firmly at the forefront of the modern literary tradition that was taking shape in her time. Great review. That sounds great. Yeah, that sounds really I'm interesting. In. Yeah. Definitely um, a bonnet, right? Yeah. Just, it feels like Cather is a natural fit. Welcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah very interested to dive into some of her work. Um, I'm going to place all of those links on our social media. And if you guys want to learn more about Willa Cather, then um, you should visit willacather.org. That easy. And that's almost it for this week's episode and the entire literary home season, which is um, really, really sad. I will say this one thing before we close it out. it was so weird, obviously, that all of this happened during our sort of travel season, right? Crazy. Um, but I'm glad that we are putting up all of these episodes and promoting all of these literary homes because obviously um, everyone's in a bit of financial danger at the moment. Yeah. So it's good to just, you know, have you guys thinking about them, hopefully donating to them. And, um, you know, when things get back up and running. I hope you are thinking about volunteering if you if you live near any of these homes. So yeah, just wanted to say that real quick. Um, and now, before we go, we want to share some exciting plans that are going ahead, that are happening this fall. That's right. So Lauren and I had planned to reunite in person in September this year to take part in the 15th annual benefit walk slash run for Louisa May Alcott's Orchard House. That's the official title of the event. Mm -hmm. It's very long. But obviously we cannot. Uh, We're really sad to not see each other in person at all once in 2020, which tiny violin, I'm sure... We still talk every day. I'm sure we're yeah. sick of each other, but the in-person hanging out is, yeah, it's pretty nice. I like it. Um, mm-hmm. We are still going to take part in the run. And you can too. It's going virtual. Yeah. So you can join us um, as we virtually stagger over this finish line. Uh, wherever you are in the world, that means you listening right now between Thursday, September 10th and Sunday, September 20th, you can walk or run either the 5K or the 10K race. Um, People will be sharing their results and photos on the Orchard House social media. And we will be producing a special Bonnets at Dawn video about Alcott's relationship with running and our own 
very wobbly attempts to follow in her footsteps. Early bird registration starts at $30 and each adult 5k or 10k participant receives a t-shirt, an e-bib and an e-finisher certificate. I don't know what that is, but you will get one. And the important thing, and the reason that we hope that you will join us in taking part is that all proceeds benefit the mission of public education and historic preservation at Louisa May Alcott's Orchard House. So we will be sharing the details of the race and registration in our Facebook group, as well as uh, the ways that you all can be involved in the video. So if you're interested, please come on and join us on the social medias. And Hannah, what are those? You can find us as always on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can find us on YouTube by searching Bonnets at Dawn or Austin versus Bronte Bonnets at Dawn will title. You could do both. You can email us bonnets at dawn at gmail.com and you can join us on Facebook where we share all of the information. All of the, You can find us on Facebook where we put many interesting tidbits mm-hmm. and sausages <laughs> yeah <laughs> just search bonnets at dawn and uh, join the group sounds it'll, good it'll be great yeah fantastic and uh you might want to join now because we have a read-along coming up mm-hmm.